24 to 28, and um, I'll make a few comments about those verses and, and then have the great joy of sharing some stories with you. And as you're turning there, I, I, I want to mention this first. I don't want to forget this. Um, at the end of the conference in Tanzania this, this last week, um, one of the wives, one of the pastor's wives came after me. I mean, like, you know, white on rice kind of thing. And, and took my hand and said, please, please express to the women of Christ the King how grateful, how grateful the wives of the pastors and other leaders are for the conference that you enabled to happen for the women of the diocese. Um, uh, I think it'll be a year ago in August. So I, 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 I want to say that because I don't want to forget it. And it's a way for me actually to, to kind of segue into reading this passage and um, making some comments about my time in Africa. This ministry uh, that we have with Peter Ketula and the 300-plus pastors and wives and other Christian workers in Africa is your ministry. It is your ministry. You've owned it. You've expressed your support of it. Uh, and, and I want to thank you for it. I get to go. Most of you will never go. Most of you probably don't want to go. But this is your ministry. And from Zach uh, and Glenn, who embraced that, this when, when Barb and I first um, began to express um, uh, our sense that the Lord was calling us here uh, to, the, to the very last two weeks when so many of you have responded to my requests for prayer, everything from, from praying for the preaching to praying for a good seat on the airplane. <laughs> um, I want to say thank you and tell you how deeply I appreciate that you have owned this ministry and have given me the privilege of being your eyes and ears, your voice, your hands, your feet among our brothers and sisters in Africa. So the specific thank you to the women of the church for making it possible for the women of that diocese to gather for training, and my thanks to you for enabling me to go. Um, I thank you for them and for myself. Now, let me have you turn with me to Acts 14, verses 24 to 28. Let's read uh, this together. Follow along with me as I read. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Ataliah, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for the thrill that it is for us now removed uh, by 20 centuries to be sure. But uh, what a thrill and a joy it is, it is for us to have the record of the beginning of the expansion of the gospel into all the nations as you, through the Lord Jesus Christ, reclaim the nations to give to your Son as an inheritance 
that he might be glorified and that you might be praised. What a spectacular privilege it is for us now to participate in this work that you are doing. Please help us as we look at your word. Please encourage our hearts by what you're doing throughout the world in Jesus' name. Amen. When Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch in Syria along the eastern shore of the Mediterranean after Paul's first foray into what is now Turkey, into Asia Minor, the text, verse 27, tells us that they gathered the church together. They had been sent, Paul and Barnabas had, by the believers at Antioch. They'd been commissioned by the believers at Antioch after the Holy Spirit had made it clear that Paul and Barnabas were to engage uh, in this ministry of carrying the gospel to the nations, the church at Antioch had the privilege of sending them, as I have had the privilege of being sent by you. And when they returned after two years, they were gone for two years. They went first uh, uh, to some Mediterranean islands and then up uh, into uh, to Asia Minor, uh, what is now Turkey. They spent two years preaching the gospel, planting churches. And after those two years, when they came back, Again, the text tells us they gathered together, they gathered the church together to report what God had done with them. I love that. I love that. Didn't start with Paul and Barnabas. Wasn't their idea. Didn't start with the church at Antioch. Wasn't their idea. It was God's idea. And God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, stirred up the church, stirred up Paul and Barnabas. That's a whole sermon in itself. And Paul and Barnabas went, and when they came back, understandably and rightfully so, they wanted to talk about it. They wanted to talk about what God had done, having set them apart, commissioned them, and sent them. They wanted to talk about what God had done with them. Again, not what they had done. Don't you love that? Not what they had done. They certainly went. They certainly were the hands and the feet and, and all of that as, as I had the privilege of being. But there is this invisible person who's, in, who's a part of this whole program. The infinite personal God who was really there, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they came back to report on what God had done with them and through them. This is the first of Paul's missionary journeys. It's the first recorded story of the expansion of the gospel out from the epicenter of the gospel, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. That's the epicenter. That's where the activity of the gospel, gospel in promise form, that's where the the activity of the gospel had been located across many, many centuries. Uh, That wasn't the end of the story. That was just the beginning of the story. And when Jesus came in fulfillment of all that was promised in the Old Testament, the time arrived for the gospel in fulfillment form to be carried out among the nations to the nations that God, through the preaching and heralding of the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit, might begin to gather from the nations one people from every race and nation and tribe and tongue whom he would present to his son as an inheritance so that the name of Jesus might be praised and glorified forever and ever and the Father might be exalted together with the Son and the Holy Spirit as the great conceivers, providers, deliverers, givers 
of a great salvation that extends to the uttermost reaches of the cosmos, beginning with human beings. And Paul and Barnabas, along with the other apostles, begin that work of moving out from that epicenter to the nations. This is the, this is the recorded history of the expansion of the church, the expansion of the gospel. But don't forget that the other apostles were involved in it as well. They went east, they went north, they went south. The only record we have of what went on is what God did through Peter and Paul and a handful of others as the gospel beginning at that epicenter then moved out in the, to the west through Asia Minor to the Greek Peloponnesus, and then ultimately to Rome. And it's a thrilling story. And it's a story that continues today. Not, not recorded in the way that this beginning of the story is recorded, but it's an unfolding story that continues today. Folks, the thing for me to remind you of is that the gospel is having success out there in the world. The gospel is having success. The gospel is reaching the nations. The gospel is laying hold of people and delivering people and freeing people from their bondage in sin and death. The gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit, across these last 20 centuries, has continued to do the kinds of things that we see recorded in the book of Acts. It is a phenomenal privilege to be able to go to the third world eat bad food, drive terrible roads, uh, shower in dirty water, and worship with God's people and hear and participate in the preaching of the gospel in another language. It is a phenomenal, phenomenal privilege. And I want to take just a few minutes uh, this morning and share with you just a few things from my time. I want to encourage you to come next Sunday evening because um, um, I'm going to do, as somebody said before the service, I'm going to do a travel log, show you pictures, some video footage, tell some more stories, answer questions, come eat dinner, and then stick around, and, and I'll, just, I'll just share. But I want to share a little bit with you this morning as Paul and Barnabas did when they gathered the church um, to give you a bit of a feel for what the last couple of weeks uh, have been like for me. First, let me, let me share with you the gist of my preaching and teaching, which is at the heart of this whole thing. Um, I say to people who express some interest in going with me, um, take a deep breath. This is not a vacation. <laughs> it's not a vacation. Uh, what is at the center of it is uh, is an attempt, however, you know, however poor, weak, frail, is an attempt to encourage pastors and Christian workers together with their spouses as they labor in the cause of the gospel at great sacrifice to themselves, great personal sacrifice. And I want to share with you the gist of what my preaching and teaching was uh, you already know it because you've been enduring it for these last two and a half to three months as we've worked painfully slowly through Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. That was the text, really, for my preaching, both of the Sundays that I was there and for the whole of the conference week in all of the, the lectures that I gave. Um, I focused on the atonement. 
I focused on the work of Jesus. I focused on the cross. And I focused on all of that as the ground of our justification. Um, We talked last week, actually the week before last now, talked with these pastors and Christian workers um, very specifically about all of these terms that I trust you're becoming familiar with from this passage in Romans 3, 21 to 26. Uh, We talked about what is called the active obedience of Christ. The way you've heard me talk about it is, is using the language of substitution, that Jesus was a substitute for you in his living before he was a substitute for you in his dying, which ought to be a great joy and a great encouragement to you. Um, The whole gist of this, the idea that Jesus is my substitute in his living before he is a substitute for me in his dying is, is that Jesus obeyed the law. He is the righteousness of God. Paul says in verse 21 of Romans 3 that now, now there is a righteousness that has appeared from God and it's a multifaceted term, that term righteousness in that particular verse. But what is at the center of it is Jesus Christ. He is the righteousness who has been made manifest. He is the righteousness who has been revealed. He is the one who has obeyed all of the law, satisfied all of the law. For people who have not obeyed the law, for people who have in fact, like their first parents, Adam and Eve, been rebels, who've broken the law, and who because they have broken the law are found guilty in the presence of a God who is holy and righteous and good. Jesus comes as your substitute. He comes into the world to live perfectly and to satisfy all righteousness. And having satisfied all righteousness, Jesus, having fulfilled all righteousness, now becomes our redemption. And you remember the meaning of the term redemption, it means to secure freedom through the payment of a price. Secure freedom, secure liberty through the payment of a price. I'll just speak for myself. I'm so accustomed to living in a country that has been, is, and we trust will continue to be free, that I think I'm free. But as we went through all of the passages, and I went through all of this in much greater detail with these pastors and wives than I did with you several weeks ago, as we go through the scriptures, Passage by passage by passage by passage, it becomes abundantly clear that in my natural condition, I am not free. I'm in bondage to sin and death and my own utter stupidity, foolishness, and rebellion. And God, because he is infinite in compassion, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved me, secured my freedom for me. Some of you know one of my favorite movies is Shawshank Redemption. I watched it on the plane coming back across the pond. There are so many dialogues, so many 
monologues, little speeches in that film that are so loaded with gospel imagery. But the one point at which Shawshank Redemption does not tell the true story of redemption is in this. The main character of the film saves himself by boring through a wall and swimming through 500 yards of latrine to fresh open air. That is not the Bible story. The Bible story is that I need a redeemer. And God, who is rich in mercy, infinite in compassion, has provided that in Jesus Christ. He has secured my freedom by the payment of a price. How does he do that? How does he secure the payment? How does he secure my freedom? He does it by acting as my substitute in this second way, by taking my sin to him. You remember these words, these words, imputation and substitution. He secures my freedom, paying the price with his life as he takes my sin away from me. It is imputed to him. It is credited to him. It becomes his clothing. It becomes what he wears, taken away from me, so that he, bearing my sin, does two things. By his shed blood, he cleanses me of my sin. He removes my sin. And by his death on the cross, he suffers the wrath of God propitiating, satisfying that wrath, satisfying the justice of a holy God, a righteous God. That's what he does. As my substitute, my sin-bearing substitute, to give you the technical term, he expiates, removes the problem of sin, cleanses me of my sin, and propitiates, he satisfies the wrath and justice of God. I remember, gosh, I remember this so vividly at a mission conference years ago where Eric Alexander preached from Matthew 26, 27. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In preaching from that text, he looked at the congregation and said to the congregation, at the cross of Christ, the wrath of God was exhausted. And you have nothing to fear. If you're a Christian this morning, if if you're a Christian this morning, do two things. Quit trying to please God. Now, you understand what I'm saying? Look, all children want to please their parents. I get that. Okay? I get that. But the longing to please your parents is a longing to please your parents, your children. Your children because of the grace of Christ. Stop trying to earn something that is already given to you by grace through faith because of the infinite compassion of God, the rich mercy of God. Stop trying to earn something that is given to you and that you receive by faith. Rest in it. Rest in it. And then, by the grace of God, by the grace of God, looking to Him for the strength, encouragement, the help that you need in Jesus Christ, 
then look to him to seek to live the life of obedience that you know would please him. But do it as children. Not as those on the outside looking in, but those who are on the inside. Having received freedom and adoption and justification, this declaration of innocence and this declaration of righteousness based on the finished work of Christ offered as a gift received by faith. All of these blessings rest in these blessings and live your life out of them. That's what I, that's what I talked about for hours. I mean, hours of lectures unpacking these things to these pastors and wives and other Christian workers. Why would I do that? Why would I teach these things to these 300 people? Well, there are lots of reasons. I'll share many of the reasons next Sunday night, but let me give you the two main reasons for focusing on this. The two main reasons for focusing on this, it has to do with what they have and what they need. What they have, what these beloved brothers and sisters have is a basic knowledge of the Bible and a list of do's and don'ts. That's what, that's what they have received. Their training is very, very limited, very, very minimal. Some of them have gone to Bible college. When they graduate from that Bible college, they have the, the equivalent of an AA degree from a junior college. They have very, very, they know their Bibles. Don't misunderstand me. They know their Bibles. But what they've not ever had is someone who would come and connect the dots for them. But the, they've got the pieces of the puzzle, but they've never had any help in putting the pieces of the puzzle together. And that's what I try to do. Try to put the pieces of the puzzle together for them. Try to connect the dots for them. But the second thing that they have is a list of do's and don'ts. That's, that's what they've received. Basic Bible knowledge, which is a glorious thing. But the gospel for them, and I heard this from a couple of pastors, the gospel for them has become stop sinning. It's become stop sinning. Don't, whatever the Tanzanian version of equivalent of this is, it's become don't smoke, don't chew, and don't go with girls who do. Whatever the Tanzanian equivalent is, It's been a moral code. It's been stop, 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 don't, don't, don't. Now look, I want to stop sinning myself. I want you to stop sinning. John, when he wrote his first letter, said, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. I don't want you to sin. I don't want to sin either. I hate it. Paul hated it. Sin sin never did anybody any good. Sin makes promises that it can't keep. It promises life, it brings death at every level. I want to stop sinning. I want them to stop sinning. I want you to stop sinning. But there's a bigger, bigger question here. And that is this. What really captures my heart? What really captures my heart? What really moves me? What really motivates me? What captures the totality of my person to move me away from disobedience and in the direction of obedience? There are two ways to motivate people, law and love. Let me ask you, which one works? Which one works? I preach these things to pastors 
to wives, to Christian workers, because I want God to penetrate the exterior and get into their hearts and begin to capture their hearts. I want this for myself as well. I want to be captured more and more and more by the riches of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Paul writes to the Ephesians, I'm just going to give you these passages. I encourage you to read them this afternoon or this week. When Paul writes to the Ephesians, one of the places where he camped, where he stayed for a long time, three years, he was writing to people he loved. If you read Acts chapter 20, you see the heartbreaking, tear-filled responses of Paul to the elders and the elders to Paul as they contemplate that they might never see him again. These people loved each other. And when Paul writes them, one of the most magisterial letters in all of the New Testament, he writes them and tells them what he is praying for, for them. If you read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, you will see that what he is praying for, for them, is that they might be captivated by the love of Christ that you might know the love of Christ, which is high and deep and wide and long, and which simply, the depths of which cannot be plumbed, the width of which cannot be traversed, the expanse of which cannot be comprehended. When he gives his parting shot, it's not stop it, stop it, stop it. He prays that they might understand the love of God in Jesus Christ. Because he knows that what will capture their hearts and move them is not a moral code, but the wonder of this grace. I'm not, I'm not telling you these things because I'm showing off, justifying my existence, or justifying the, in your minds the prospect of going again next year. But one of the pastors spoke to the bishop after the conference and said, if we would take these things back to our churches, it might be that God would start a revival in the midst of our churches. People commented that there was a sense of peace that descended upon this whole conference. Pastors, guys who know these things, who who have some ability to talk about these things, by God's grace, being captivated by these things. A good friend sent me an email yesterday, sometime yesterday, and said, if you're struggling with jet lag at 2.30 in the morning, here's something you can read. It was a talk that Ed Clowney delivered from Psalm 96 at the Urbana Conference in 1974. And in his talk, he referred to the healing of the ten lepers. They were all healed, but only one came back. And this is his sort of paraphrastic exposition of that exchange, the exchange between Jesus and the one who returned. Where where are the nine? Jesus said, well, Jesus, they're on the road to Jerusalem. They're, they're going where you sent them. They're going to, to the priests who can pronounce them clean. Jesus, you said nothing about coming back. They're just doing their duty. 
And then he goes on to say, duty? Yes, duty. Obedience? Yes, obedience. But what obedience is this that knows nothing of the joy of salvation and the praise of the name of God? What obedience is this that knows nothing of the joy of salvation and the praise of the name of God? The one came back because he had to come back and say, I can't believe that I've been healed. I'll get to the priest. I'll get there. But I've got to come back to the one who has made me well and express my gratitude. Look, that's the way this thing works, folks. And that's why I preach these things to these pastors. Several of the pastors asked me, several of them did, said, can we please have your notes? Peter, the bishop, has asked me if I would reduce my lectures to a manuscript so that it can be published in Swahili. I'm not, look, it's not about me. I tell, people say, you ought to write a book. I said, no, here's my job. My job is to get you to read the books that are already in print. But they need stuff in Swahili, so I'll be happy to do the best I can to get these pathetic manuscripts into print so they can be translated into Swahili for the benefit, I hope, and pray of these pastors. So that's what we did. That's what I did. Just one more story, then we'll quit, and you got to come back next week for the rest. These are just appetizers. I preached the same things. I preached the same things the two Sundays that I was in Tanzania. I preached from the same text, took slightly different angles from the same text. The second Sunday I preached in the town of Bunda where the conference was held. It was outdoors. Several hundred people gathered around. Hot sun. Service lasted three hours. You're getting off easy. After the service, I I went to the pastor's home to eat goat and rice and some green stuff. Where it comes from, I don't know. And as we were preparing for lunch, the pastor came in. He had been gone for an hour. The pastor came in and said that there was a woman who had come forward as a result of the preaching that morning. He said she'd been coming to church for weeks. She'd been worshiping at this church for weeks. But she would always slip out before anybody could get her name. It's amazing how common things are across cultures. (laughs) Nobody could get her name. But this morning, she came forward and she accepted Christ. And she had been involved in the occult, involved in witchcraft, involved in charms and, and incantations and that kind of thing. And when she came forward and then met with the pastor and and with another elder, with an elder from the church, and they led her through the gospel and she accepted Christ, they had a little ceremony in which they burned, they burned her idols. They do those kinds of things in Tanzania. Can I say this politely and a little bit tongue-in-cheek. If we burned our idols, we'd have no place to live. We'd have nothing to drive. 
We have nothing to wear. Point the finger at myself when I say this. Okay. They had a little ceremony. They have these ceremonies in Tanzania where they burn the idols that have occupied the hearts of those who have turned from those idols to trust in Jesus Christ. So I don't know her name, but she's my sister. I don't know her circumstances, but she is rich this Sunday. Whereas last Sunday she was poor. And I I just, again, again, I've got so many stories that I do want to share with you. Wonderful, wonderful evidences of God's grace and favor having been upon us. I, I want to tell you about the eight people who have become Christians as a result of us putting the well in the village in Masinono. People who have been attracted to the church because of the compassion that several of you have expressed toward people whom you won't meet until you get into the presence of Jesus. Um, Because of that compassion, uh, there are eight, at least eight people who are are in the kingdom, who, who responded to the gospel because of a tangible, visible expression. Uh, of compassion and mercy and kindness. I want to tell you those stories. Um, but mostly I want to encourage you that God is at work. He is at work in the hearts of those pastors, those evangelists, those wives, those Christian workers. There are problems in the church in Tanzania. There are real problems, just like there are real problems in the church in America. I don't want to idealize this thing or romanticize it. I just want you to know that I had the privilege of being in a very, very different place and seeing and experiencing and participating in the work of the gospel as gospel, as God fulfills the promise that he made that he would gather a people from every race and nation and tribe and tongue across the face of the earth. So God is to be praised. You are to be thanked. I'm grateful to be home, but want to celebrate with you um, the great blessings of the last two and a half weeks. So thank you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, uh, we marvel at this gospel, which has set us free, which has made us rich. We marvel at this gospel, which is setting others free and making them rich. Uh, We delight to praise your name, magnify your name, and we plead with you that you would make us like the one leper, not, not like the nine, merely doing our duty, but being enamored of, drawn up into, captivated by, and then compelled by the great love which you have had for us. May we then move out into this world seeking to serve you faithfully, seeking to be the leading edge of the kingdom of the King of kings and Lord of lords. In whose name we pray. Amen. Stand with me, and we will sing uh, the concluding hymn. It's number 437. Oh, God, to us, continue to show mercy. Let's